Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's going on, traders? Welcome to episode 120. Thank you very much for being here. I'm glad you could join me. Uh, first up, I must give a quick reminder. I'm hosting a small Chat with Traders event in New York on the 2nd of May. There will be bears, there will be pizza, and I'll be doing a live interview with a trader, essentially like a live podcast. There will also be a number of past guests of Chat With Traders attending, so it'll be a cool opportunity to meet with some of them, and more importantly, meet up with other traders who are doing similar things and who have similar goals to yourself. It's only 12 bucks for a ticket, and that includes absolutely everything. You can grab a ticket at chatwithtraders.com slash NY. Just so you know, since I first announced this last week, more than 80 people have reserved their spot already and I have a hard stop at 120 people. So please be quick if you'd like to come. And a special thanks to Trading Technologies and Sanglucci who are both sponsoring this event and essentially making the whole thing possible. Avoid the FOMO, reserve your spot at chatwithtraders.com slash NY. Now, on to my guest for this episode. My guest is Meb Faber. Meb is the founder and CIO at Cambria Investment Management, where he manages Cambria's ETFs, separate accounts, and private investment funds. He's also authored numerous white papers and five books now. Meb's a budding podcaster too. His podcast is called The Meb Faber Show. The main reason why I asked Meb to come on the podcast was to talk to us about some simple ways that active traders can capitalize on the opportunity and compounding effect that somewhat passive longer-term investing has to offer. So I asked Meb about where to start out, how to set expectations, various types of portfolios, when to enter the market, what to do during drawdown, what things new investors struggle with most, and so on and so forth. Throughout the interview, Meb does mention a fair few links and resources. I've curated all of these at chatwithtraders.com slash 120, so you can find everything there. I don't think I've missed any. 
And one last thing, in case we have some new listeners here, please keep in mind you're 100% responsible for your own trading and investing decisions. Now, please welcome Meb Faber joining us from California. When you first got into markets, Meb, where did you start out? So my background's a little different. I was a biotech and engineering student at university, but this was during the late two th- uh, late nineties. So a pretty exciting time in markets, both for internet as well as biotech. If you remember back uh, back uh, sequencing the genome and all the fun stuff going on with genetics, and so. You know, I spent a fair amount of my spare time uh, investing and studying markets. And so it actually started out as a biotech equity analyst, taking a year off before going back to get my Ph.D. But that that one year off certainly became two, three, four and started gravitating more and more towards um, the quant side of the business before eventually starting Cambria in 2007 here in Los Angeles, with my partner, Eric Richardson. Um, but, but if you wanted to go back really far, you know, it's certainly, um, with my father chatting stocks and investments in business, uh, you know, for many years growing up and, and I, I even found a a postcard the other day that I had written from camp that was talking about how, uh, I thought it was a good idea for us to pick up some shares at Disney. So kind of a, kind of a fun reminder at an early age, but yeah, it was, uh, it was instilled pretty early on. And so what other roles have you had? Obviously, you are, I think it's CIO and also co-founder of Cambria now, but what other roles have you had sort of leading up to that point? And I think you worked as a trader at some point also. Yeah, I mean, so that it was started out as, as biotech analyst while I was going to grad school. And so that was focused on pure fundamental research, picking biotech stocks. And then it became a little more quantitative. I, I went to go work for a CTA, so commodity trading advisor, that um, I spent more of my time on, on trading systems, quantitative ideas, everything from very short term to very long term, but with a particular interest in what a lot of CTAs do, of course, which is which is a lot of what we do at Cambria, which is um, trend following concepts, long term trend following ideas that have been around for, of course, many, many decades. But uh, and then had simply moved to, to L.A. in 06 and started Cambrian in 07. And so um, but it's a full spectrum from fundamental, technical and then multi assets from everything around the world, stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, everything in between. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. Like, how do you spend your time these days? What sort of things are you doing? What do you do now? What is Cambria essentially? You know, I think a lot of professional investors on uh, that are listening to this will sympathize or, or this will next comment will resonate a little bit is that you learn pretty quickly the difference between managing money and the business of money management. And what I mean by that is, you know, simply coming up with trading ideas and systems and theory and research is totally different than running a, a investment business. And so there's a lot of people that are intre- um, attracted to our world by, you know, the, of course, the money and the compensation, but also the really exciting, complex puzzles that exist in, in the world economy and investing. But, you know, also on the flip side of, you know, spending all day on uh, chatting with lawyers and the SEC and managing public funds and talking to reporters and all that good stuff that goes in with running a company and making sure people get paid on time. So uh, what do I spend most of my time? I, I enjoy doing is, is certainly the research uh, and, and 
something that's a bit of a surprise had you told me 10 years ago when we started the firm is, is of course, writing. Uh, you know, the, the first academic paper I ever wrote was an accident and, and published. And then looking back on it, it's kind of crazy now because we've published about a dozen white papers, five books. And I think the blog has gone on 2000 articles, uh, which is a little crazy. So, but the writing has become part of the process. And so like you, you know, we started a podcast last summer, which has been a lot of fun. So the day to day is kind of coming up with ideas or concepts to refine our process or to help implement or improve what we're doing. And in some cases, you know, we have eight public funds out there, uh, to actually launch new products or, or things that we look around and say, Hey, I, I think this is a better mousetrap or uh, a more interesting thing that doesn't exist that should. But the day to day that I would spend most of the time, what I like doing is reading and writing and, uh, skiing if, if I get the chance to, but, uh, this year's been a little light on the latter front. <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, it sounds as though you've got a lot of things going on. I'm just interested to know, is there like a, how would you categorize your style or, or styles of investing and trading? I mean, is it possible to categorize what you do because you do so many different things or is there like, like, is there an overarching theme to what you do? There, there's a couple. So when we think of launching funds or any sort of money management that we offer to the public is that there's a couple criteria and we say, look, number one, does this concept or fund exist already? Because there's plenty of fund companies out there like Vanguard, you know, multi-trillion in assets that uh, provide a lot of products and they do it very, very well. Two, is it something that we think we can improve upon or that doesn't exist or that we can do cheaper? And we think there's still a lot of ideas out there that, that don't exist in the format that we think that they should. And lastly, for me, is, that, is it something that I want to put my own money into? And so unlike the vast majority of mutual fund managers, I think the number is something like ranges from 50 to 80% of mutual fund, ma- mutual fund managers in the U.S. have zero dollars invested in their own funds and, and on the higher percentages is less than a hundred thousand. So, you know, I have a hundred percent of my net worth in our funds and strategies and, and most of the people here do. So is it something that you believe in and you want to invest in? And so once you've said that the funds are very different, each one or each strategy ranges from funds that are very niche you know, that may say be a sovereign high yield bond fund, you know, that's a very neat strategy to something very broad, like an asset allocation fund that owns 30,000 securities around the world and is a super low fee. Now that having been said, there are, and everything we do is rules-based and quantitative, which we think is important to remove the emotions out of the whole process. That having been said, there are two themes that kind of have their tentacles in almost every fund or thought process. And it's two concepts that have been around for over a hundred years, ever since Charles Dow was talking about it with Dow theory and trend following. So that's one is is in their close cousins, but momentum and trend. And then two is, uh, again, over a hundred years old is Ben Graham talking about it. And that, that of course is value investing. And so some funds are pure value funds. Some funds are pure trend following funds. Some funds do actually the combination of the two, which is if you had to pick one investment strategy or concept in the world that 
is is the perfect synergy of uh, everything I look for. It's it's value and trend or momentum. So basically, something that's really cheap that's going up. Uh, but depending on the fund or strategy, you know, those are the two main themes. And and then of course we could talk about this at some point, but. Uh, also, the question of how does an investor holistically put together all these ideas into a portfolio and not go totally crazy with with holding these two different ideas in their head? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly going to get into that. I think that's going to sort of be the the main focus of of our conversation here. But I just want to go back to that that stat you threw out: something like fifty to eighty percent of asset managers don't actually have any money in their own funds. I mean, that seems really crazy. <laughs> I'm kind of shocked by that. Here's the funny part about it. And I, I know Nassim Taleb's got a new book coming out on this topic, which I look forward to, but it's either really strange and surprising or it's incredibly unsurprising. And so let's say the average mutual fund manager charges 1.25%. Average ETF is like 0.55%. And many funds, you can now get ETFs and, and mutual funds publicly for even like 10, 20 basis points. So in many cases, a lot of these mutual fund managers say, look, I know this fund is tax inefficient. I know that it's expensive. Why would I invest my own money in that? And that's a totally rational decision. Um, now, from the in-fund investor, it's the last thing I want to see. You know, I want to see that fund manager investing in their own fund. And, and this is one of the reasons the hedge fund space traditionally at least has that going for it. You know, the, the traditional hedge fund fee structure is much higher, but at least most of these managers have a lot more skin in the game for better or for worse. But, you know, and it depends on the fund too and the different strategies, but Morningstar puts out a lot of uh, research on this topic, which is where we sourced it. And I'm, I can't remember the exact name of the blog post, but I can certainly send it to you that has the charts on this topic. Uh, but yeah, it, it ranges depending on the type of fund, but in some cases, yeah, it's as high as 80, uh, I think 80% have either nothing or less than a hundred thousand in the fund. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. We might try and dig up that link and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes if anyone's interested to read up more about that. Uh, but as we hinted, Meb, obviously I've reached out to you and I've, you're aware of this. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I was really keen to bring you on the podcast is because I kind of want to speak to you about how active traders, traders who trade very short time frames, either intraday or, or swing trading, you know, holding positions for a couple of days, how short-term active traders can sort of tap into the opportunity of a longer-term, bigger picture investing as well. Something that requires less input than it does to be an active day trader, for example, um, but something that can is reasonably simple, reasonably robust, you know, just some actionable tips and ideas for how we can sort of take advantage of that, the, the compounding effect. So I guess, you know, on this point of conversation, what is a good starting point? I mean, let's just start right there. I mean, most of my questions, <laughs> just so you know, are going to be fairly basic, but because I think this is this is quite new to a lot of people. People who are even advanced traders, I think some of them tend to neglect the investing side. Obviously, that's why I brought you on here. So what's a good starting point? Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> no, it, it, it does. And I, and I think it's one of the most important things an investor can do. And so people, and it doesn't just matter if it's 
with investing or relationships or work, one of the most important things people can do in life is understand expectations. And so I saw a recent survey recently asked a bunch of investors around the world, what do you expect stocks to return? And same thing in the US and and of course asked some millennials too. And I think the the average response is they expect stocks to return 10.5% or something going forward. And there's a couple comments on that. And so one is to say, all right, the first thing we need to do is set our base case and understand what does history look like? What are the worst case scenarios? What are the best case scenarios? So my favorite investing book, which I highly recommend, it's expensive, so go get it at the library if you're listening. It's called Triumph of the Optimist. It's written by a couple of British professors. And it takes a look at the history of markets going back to 1900. And there's some, been some other variants of this. Ibbotson's done it. But this one in particular looks at about 20 global markets. So it looks at, say, for example, here's what the world looked like in 1900 and the sector composition and the global composition of markets. And then here's how these markets did since 1900. And here's an example. And by the way, there, um, if you Google Global Investment Returns Yearbook, Credit Suisse does an annual update to this book that's free. So you can probably get about 10 years of this for free that uh, is probably the best investment uh, writing that you can read. Highly recommend it. Anyway, so what, what's the historical results look like? So U.S. has done about 10% a year in stocks going back to 1900. And then um, if you look at bonds, they've done about 7%. And I think bills had done about 6%. So going back to 1900. Um, Now, uh, sorry, that might be a little bit too high. But the the real return, so net of inflation, is that stocks did 6.5%. Uh, bonds did around two and bills did around one. So um, you lop off that 4% inflation and you get down to those numbers. Now, the U.S. was one of the best performing stock markets in the world over that period. It went from kind of this emerging market to now the global superpower. The best performing stock market in the world, uh, I think, was tiny South Africa. And then the worst performing is Austria basically had zero returns over the entire period, real, so after inflation. And that's not really the worst case scenario. The really the worst case scenario is China and Russia shutting down their capital markets completely. So essentially your, your investment there went to zero when, when the government said, thank you very much, we're going to take your investments away. So that's the base case scenario. And so we like to call it the 5-2-1 rule, meaning after inflation... Stocks globally have done about 5% a year, bonds, and I'm rounding up, about 2% a year, and bills around 1%. And so every deviation from that, you got to start with that as the, as the starting point. And you say, okay, U.S. stocks, they've also declined by 50% multiple times. So most people are familiar with that, global financial crisis, dot-com bust, but they also declined over 80% in the Great Depression. And Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett often say this as as many others. They say, look, if you're not willing to invest in stocks and experience quoted securities having a 50% decline, you shouldn't be in stocks in the first place. So that's a lot of just kind of here's the base case scenario. So you should never be surprised if you buy a stock market, for example, and it goes down 80% or 50%. Now, you can come up with probabilities and projected outcomes based on a lot of other things we'll talk about, I'm sure at some point, like valuation. But in general, you have to assume that 
potential outcome. And then so people say, okay, well, stocks sound pretty risky, even though they have higher returns. What about bonds? Well, bonds suffer from a much different risk, which is usually not the price crash risk, but it's really the long eroding effects of inflation. So while bonds on a nominal level have only declined by about 20%, bonds after inflation in the U.S. in particular, but other places around the world, have declined by half. So in many ways, bonds are equally as risky as stocks, but the uh, it's a different risk, which is inflation, whereas stocks typically it's more of a manic, depressive, Mr. Market risk and, and the price change. So the solution for many people, first thing they do is they say, okay, well, I'm going to diversify across U.S. stocks and bonds. We'll do a traditional 60-40 portfolio. And you get a little bit lower return than stocks, but you get lower volatility and drawdowns. Well, the problem with that portfolio is it's the volatility of stocks still dominates the portfolio. And so you have a portfolio that still ends up with very high drawdowns. We're talking two-thirds at some point. You, you can't really find a global market that hasn't had two-thirds drawdown at some point in a, in a 60-40 traditional institutional allocation. And most investors, if you were to tell them, man, you know, here's your basic moderate portfolio, 60-40, and you're going to lose 60% at some point, that's way too much risk for them. And it's really hard. And that's why you see so much bad behavior by investors when uh, markets do poorly. And there's a lot of research that comes out that shows this, that people over and over again, based on their emotions, will sell at market bottoms, buy at market tops, rinse, repeat. And part of that's just because we're human. You know, we're not really built to trade shares of IBM and, and wheat futures, but but really the flight response and the, the greed takeover. And it's, uh, it's just part of knowing the history, at least, of what's capable and what's happened in the past can at least help you take a step back and say, okay, let me implement some sort of rules-based policy portfolio or process to avoid me acting like an idiot going forward. Okay. Now, when you talk about, just for example, stocks have returned X amount over you know, the last 100 years or, or whatever, when you say stocks have returned, are you talking about you know, the stock market index? Yeah. So, we're talking about like a, a, what we call a market cap weighted index, which means in the US, the good example is S&P 500. And th- this is actually a good talking point where the, the market cap weighted index, which weights, so the S&P 500 means you put the most in Apple and the next in whatever it is, Walmart, Exxon, et cetera. You put the most in the biggest stocks all the way down. And that reflects the market. That is literally the market. If you were to go out and just buy, quote, the market, that is the sum average of what everyone's going to have. Well, there's a couple comments on this. So one, a lot of people don't know this, particularly in the U.S., and and this is a point of, of bad behavior also, is that, so if you look globally, the U.S. is about half of world market cap. And so that means the rest of the world makes up the other half. And the problem in the U.S., for example, is that most investors in the U.S. invest around 70% of their equity allocation in the U.S. And that's called home country bias, meaning they put way more in their own market than other other markets. And it's a normal thing for, for people to do. You know, it's the same reason I cheer for the Denver Broncos and I like skiing is that, you know, all these other things is that it's comfortable. It's what I'm used to. It makes sense. But the irony is that it happens in every country around the world. So Aussies just as bad. Brits just as bad. 
Japan and China even worse, where these markets, people in the local country place way too much in their own market relative to the world percentage. And that gives you a massive uncompensated risk, which is this concentration risk. And you could ask anybody in Greece or Brazil or Russia the last few years in these countries that have declined 60 to 90 percent. And they say that was probably a really dumb thing to do. But it also applies to stocks. You know, a lot of people say, for example, may work at a company and invest uh, in the stock of the company in their retirement plan. And so they're really like triple leverage to the company, one with their job, one with the uh, money going into their retirement plan, and, and three to the broad market as well. So that, that sort of risk and that sort of concentration, um, while market cap investing is the market, it's also a very suboptimal way to invest. And we can get into that if you want. But, you know, a lot of people, to further clarify what market cap investing means, is a lot of people all say, hey, look, the S&P 500, you know, what's that? And I'll talk to friends and they'll say, well, it's the 500 largest companies in the U.S. I say, right. Largest by what measure? And usually my friends will say, well, you know, probably like earnings and revenue. I say, no, 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 no. The only measure that matters is simply the price of the stock times the shares outstanding. And that's what we call That's market cap. That's how big the company is. But it actually has nothing to do with whether the company makes any money, whether they ever sold one widget ever, whether they have any revenue, anything whether it's a good value, whether the stock's super cheap or inexpensive. All it is is how much are people willing to pay for the price of that stock. And so if you were an alien and came down and said, is this a reasonable way to invest? I don't think anyone would think it is, but that's, um, but that's the market cap investing. Now, the pro of that is that by owning the index, and this is one reason why it works historically, is you're guaranteed to own the winners. So you're guaranteed to own Apple, Amazon, McDonald's, all these stocks that have had incredible performance. And the historical re results show that it's actually a subset of all of the stocks out there, maybe 20%, that deliver all the gains. So market cap investing is a good first step, but it's not an ideal way to invest. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now, just before we go any further, obviously I kind of outlined my reasons for wanting to bring you onto the podcast here. 
And I just want to go back to that a little bit. Is it slightly naive to think that you can do well in investing with, what's the right word, with limited input? You know what I mean? Because like I said, one of the reasons was obviously active trading is very time intensive. I kind of see longer term investing as something that does require less input. I'm just curious to get your opinion on that. Like, is that me being naive? Because if someone said they wanted to be a trader with very little time input, you know, good luck. (laughs) Is it the same with bigger picture investing? Obviously, it takes up a large part of your day, but you're doing, you know, many things. As someone who wants to take more of a passive approach, is that reasonable? So here's the beauty is we, we wrote an article a couple of years ago, I think called it's a wonderful time to be an investor. It's probably the best time to be an investor in the history of investing as far as access to low cost uh, portfolios. And what I mean by that is any investor could go out and buy a handful of Vanguard funds. They could buy our asset allocation ETF and boom, in one shot, and there's even brokerages that don't charge commissions at this point. There's the advent of all of these digital advisors that now do it for you. So it's very simple. And you could just go sign up for any of these digital advisors. We have one. Vanguard has one. Schwab has one. But you could also just go buy all in one fund, in meaning you get all of these things for a super low cost and a very, very tax efficient vehicle. And that's awesome. You know, you go back 20, 30 years when these brokerages would charge 3% or even 10 years ago. And, and, the, and the scary thing is that a lot of this still exists in the world. So the flip side of this is that you've never had more access to dynamite to blow yourself up as well. You know, the ability to have an app on your phone and you can trade all day long and, and uh, not pay commissions and, you know, check your balance every 10 seconds if you wanted to are all things that probably don't help the long-term approach, you know, probably helps your world a lot, but, but doesn't help the uh, long-term investment approach. And so there is a lot of awesome solutions out there. And, you know, we try to be honest and agnostic and say, look, obviously we think we have some great solutions, but there's plenty of other great shops, Schwab, Vanguard, et cetera, uh, BlackRock that you can invest in a couple of these funds, not look at them again for 10, 20, 30 years and be just fine. The beauty of these, what people call these digital advisors or robo-advisors now, and um, there's a handful of them in the U.S. to where they'll give you, a, you take a questionnaire, they give you a portfolio of, say, a dozen funds, they rebalance them for you, they tax manage them for you, you do literally nothing. And so to the, to the person that wants a good solution and needs to spend, I don't know, 10 minutes a year, if at all, uh, it's never been a better time. And we can get into some specifics on how some of these are better than others and how some are, are you know, still terrible. I mean, the, the bad news is that most of the investment world for even this long-term holding still charge huge fees and can be very predatory. So if someone doesn't know what they're doing, you can still go down the route that our parents and grandparents do. But the good news is that most of all the news flow and fund flows demonstrate that it's kind of a one-way street. You know, most people don't go from uh, a high-fee, tax-inefficient product where someone isn't a fiduciary to someone who, by law, has to be in your best interest, 
low-cost funds that are tax efficient and perform well, usually that's a one-way street. And usually it's a generational process that people, people um, you know, they'll sell off their funds when they die uh, or get divorced or inherit the money. I mean, th- there's a stat in the U.S. that the average financial advisor that's been in business for, I forget, it's either 10 or 20 years, owns 200 mutual funds for his clients. And that harkens back to the days of, you know, these salespeople showing up and selling a fund and getting a 3% commission and the fund costing 2% a year plus 12B1 fees plus a front end load. Well, that world doesn't really exist. I mean, it still exists, but it's dying a very, very quick death. So the good news is it's a wonderful time to be an investor and you have never had better access to low uh, cost products. And I'll even give you one more stat that a lot of people don't know. So for example, let's say you have an ETF exchange traded fund that charges 30 basis points per year. And so a third of a percent. So it's super low already. Many of these funds actually will go and lend out some of the securities uh, to short sellers on margin. And then they will return the short lending revenue to the fund shareholders. So there are a handful of funds out there that actually have a negative expense ratio, meaning they're paying you to own the fund. And that's a pretty cool thing, right? If you think about it, uh, what a time we live in to be able to own an investment portfolio where the management fee is actually negative. So you're talking about some of these robo-advisors which are becoming increasingly popular. If someone was willing to put in a little more effort, you know, you said if you go down that path, you could spend 10 minutes a year to manage your longer-term investments. If someone was to put in a little more effort than that, what's their chances of achieving better performance over the long term? So this is an interesting question because to me, the the beauty of a lot of the funds and strategies now is that if you go back to the 70s, when John Bogle invented the mutual, uh, the index fund, you know, that used to have a certain meaning that meant market cap weighting, low turnover, low cost. And that's what an index fund was. So something like the S&P 500, right? Well, it's that, that definition has been totally polluted over the years because what it, active management used to mean is, hey, here's a manager who's trying to beat the S&P 500 and he charges 2% a year and there's very little chance of him doing it and it's tax inefficient. So that's why index funds have now grown so much. They're about, I think, a quarter or a third of the overall market. Well, however, all index funds have become at this point is rules-based process. So, for example, we were talking about how market cap index weighting S&P 500 is a good first step. But if you weight the stocks in the S&P 500 by almost any other methodology, you could equal weight them. You could weight them on based on like a value metric, something like price to earnings ratio. You know, people used to talk about dividend yield and the dogs of the Dow. So any of these weighting methodologies will beat the S&P 500 by a percent or two per year going back as long as we have data to the 20s. The reason being is that market cap weighting has no tether to, pri- uh, to value. And so once you break this market cap link and you start to tilt towards value, so buying a stock that has a lower P-E ratio or a higher dividend yield, you end up outperforming the S&P 500. Well, the good news is you can now get those rules-based objective portfolios for also very low cost. So you have indexes um, that are what people would have used to have called active management, but that are low cost, tax efficient for super low cost. So 
that doesn't necessarily require you to put any ex- any additional effort really only up front. So we talk about this in a white paper we published called the Trinity Portfolio. It's free online. We'll give you a link in the show notes. Um, and we kind of go through this holistic process of how to build a portfolio. So we start out with the U.S. 60-40. And then we expand to uh, global 60-40. And by the way, adding global assets doesn't really increase your returns or reduce your risk that much. What it does do is it reduces the possible extreme scenarios. So if you put all your money in Greek bonds and stocks, for example, that would have shown to have had a very negative outcome over the past decade. Um, on the flip side, if you put all your money in U.S. stocks you know, and bonds, you would have done much better. But a global gives you kind of the average. So you'll never be the best or the worst, which is good. The second thing you can add to the portfolio is some traditional real assets. So think about that as real estate investment trusts, commodities, uh, things like uh, energy-related or gold, things like treasury, inflation-protected securities, so TIPS, uh, because a lot of those help protect against inflation. In the 1970s, as an example, very poor period for traditional assets. So once you have that portfolio, and by the way, we kind of call that the global market portfolio, and that looks like as you just went out and bought the entire world. So if you just said, I'm going to buy with one ETF, and we actually have one that does this, I'm going to buy with one transaction, the entire world, I get 30,000 securities around the world, I don't have to do anything, okay, that's a good stop, okay? Now, Next step, if you said, all right, I want to improve upon that because I think Meb said market cap investing is, isn't ideal. What can I do? Well, the next step is you start to tilt towards things that have historically worked. And the two things we talk a lot about that academics have written thousands of papers on and thousands of books is value and momentum. So if you tilt these stock indices away from market cap to value and these indices towards momentum, those are both things that will increase the risk-adjusted return as well as the absolute return of that portfolio. So that doesn't really require any effort. Once you select the funds, you don't have to do anything because they rebalance themselves once a quarter. So all you have to do is simply monitor and rebalance it maybe once a year, even every couple years. Now, the biggest departure I have from almost every other investment manager in the country. So if you look at all these robo-advisors, and we've done posts on this, I sound like a, a broken clock, but we'll give you give you show notes um, where we compare Vanguard and Schwab and Goldman Sachs and uh, Wealthfront and Betterment. And they basically all do the same thing, which is give you that portfolio I just mentioned, the global market portfolio, stocks, bonds, a little bit of real asset. And that's a great thing. That's better than probably what 90 percent of people have out there. Now, the departure that I have is that it doesn't include an investing approach called trend following, which you've probably talked about on this podcast before, which I think for me personally is an investment strategy that I believe can give a more stable and consistent uh, investment returns as well as having the potential benefit of not sitting through long bear markets. So, um, so, But I think either approach is actually great. And the conclusion of this paper was, if you had to put a gun to my head, Desert Island, which portfolio would I pick? I would certainly pick the trend-following portfolio, but it has its own challenges. So buy and hold, the biggest problem with buy and hold, global portfolio, is the long bear markets and drawdowns. 2008, right? So when everything's hitting the fan, people panic and sell. A problem with a active trend-following portfolio is 
not necessarily in 08, because usually those do well in that sort of environment, but actually it's in the years that follow where people, where you look different, where you do poorly in a year when everyone else is doing well, when your neighbors are getting rich by buying Snapchat and everything else, and you're, you may not be doing, uh, you know, as well. So I, I, we, we said in this paper, the conclusion was kind of to put the two ideas together, 50% each to diversify not only your portfolio, but also your psychology. So there, there's a lot of ideas in there, but my, my point being is that, and we wrote a recent article about this called the zero budget portfolio. The vast majority of listeners don't have a written investment plan. So if you're listening to this right now, raise your hand, be honest with yourself. Do you have a written investment plan? I'm guessing 1% do. And then second, have you shared it with your wife, daughter, father, neighbor to keep you accountable? And unlikely the answer is yes, because, and this is why this is so important is because people, the emotional component with the long-term investing is, is usually by far the biggest problem. So uh, it doesn't really matter what the investment portfolio is so much, but once you set it, you don't have to monitor that much. All you have to do is keep yourself away from yourself. Okay. Well, well, speak to us a little bit about that. So what sort of things would you want to include in an investment plan? Like what would one look like? And just to take it one step further, I think this is also quite important is actually talking about your investment goals. So how would you suggest thinking about investment goals? Because obviously for most people listening to this, a, a trade is trying to hit much larger returns than what you're going to achieve from, you know, a slightly passive with a little bit of active investing. So yeah, what are, you, what are your thoughts around that? Let me, uh, I'll get to that, but let me give one quick point to explain why this is so important to write it down. So there's an investment survey that goes back to the eighties called the American Association of Individual Investors. And they asked their investors, are you bullish? Are you neutral? Or are you bearish on the stock market? So no surprise, you've had a very wide spectrum of responses going back to the 80s. But if you look at the historical results and you find that the highest bullish rating ever in the entire survey was in January of 2000. So the literal worst month to ever be investing in U.S. stocks in the entire history of the survey was when people wanted to buy the most and say, on a flip side, when were people, when was the highest bearish reading? It was in March of 2009. And you couldn't have made up a more awful response to that survey than what the reality was. But again, going back to the point of that's why people are human, you wanted to do the exact opposite of what all those people did. And so if you don't have a written investment approach, then you're simply flying blind. And when January 2000 comes along, you're going to be excited about buying pets.com and CMGI because your uh, neighbor and, and broker are and they're making tons of money. And the same thing happens in March 2009. You're going to be panicking. You're not going to know what to do. And so there's a lot of elements that it can be included. And so there's a lot of different um, people out there with different goals. My mom, for example, perfectly happy to sit in CDs. She sleeps at night, and that's what we say is the most important. Do you have a sleep at night portfolio? So a lot of people, you know, first step, do you have 50 grand in the bank or, you know, one or two years of expenses that you can cover your investment, um, you know, your, your lifestyle? And if you don't, you don't really need to be putting the rest at risk because these, as we mentioned, these markets can have large drawdowns. And so two would be to write down, hey, look, 
The robo advisors do a good job of this. Traditional financial advisors do a good job of this. Um, you know, traditionally they charge about 1% a year. And so if you don't have an advisor, uh, we think they can be worth their weight in gold if, if you don't feel like you can trust yourself. And a lot of people can't. Um, but at the same time, that 1%, uh, uh, that 1% cost is a very real cost. So if you don't need one, you shouldn't be paying it. And, and I can, we forgot to comment. I forgot to comment on this. We can talk about this asset allocation costs in a minute. Um, but writing it all down and coming up with all of the inputs that you may have and, and financial advisors are great because they'll provide you with a plan if you've never crafted one, but it could also be as simple as, Hey, look, I'm going to buy this diversified portfolio of ETFs and rebalance it every five years. And that's it. Like that's a policy statement, but in your head, you have to have the ability to say, is this going to stay consistent if gold goes to 5,000 or if gold goes to 200, if stocks go up 80% or down 50%, you know, are these scenarios that, or am I just going to watch CNBC and, you know, react emotionally? Cause usually that that's the, the kind of worst kind of way to go about it. As we're talking about, you know, the, these major drawdowns that obviously happen from time to time when you're a buy and hold investor, what do you suggest actually doing in those periods? Like, obviously, I know, I know you mentioned before you said it's a good idea to one option is to have be 50% invested in trend following strategies and 50% in, in buy and hold. So they kind of uh, balance each other out. But when you're in, you know, let's just go back to the prime example of 2008, the GFC. What's the, what would you suggest? for buy and hold investors to do in, in periods like that. And maybe periods that aren't even as severe as that, but you know, when you're in major drawdowns or downtrends, what can you do as a buy and hold investor? Is it best to just ride that out or, you know, like how do you deal with that? So there's a couple comments. So if you are a buy and hold investor and that that's your policy portfolio, you know, I'm going to buy and hold, I'm just going to go about it and then you do nothing. And you accept that drawdowns are a natural part of life. If, um, because here's the problem with drawdowns is that markets spend the vast majority of time in drawdowns. You know, they only spend about, I think it's like 20% of the time at new highs. And there's only two states. It's either all time high or drawdown. There's nothing in the middle. And the problem with drawdowns is it gets exponentially worse the more they go down, right? So people often talk about compounding being the eighth wonder of the world. Well, unfortunately, the opposite is true to the downside. So, it gets asymmetrical and the kink really happens around 10, 15%. So you lose 10%, you only need 12 to get back to even. You lose 20, you got to get what? 25 to get back to even. You lose 50 requires 100% to get, to get back to even. And if you lose 75% requires 300%, right? So it's much harder to come out of these drawdowns. Um, and, and the problem is you never know how bad it's going to be. So yes, theoretically, if you knew that stocks were only going down 50% in the global financial crisis, you should have loaded the boat in stocks, right? But the challenge is that 50 could have become 80. Here's where valuation helps. And so we've written a book on this topic called Global Value. And the way that valuation helps is it acts as a fundamental anchor from which you can use common sense. So here's an example. Um, we use a valuation indicator called the 10-year PE ratio. Schiller, uh, Robert Schiller popularized it in a late 90s paper and book called Irrational Exuberance. 
then Alan, Grandspan, Alan Greenspan used the phrase in, in court testimony, which made it popular. But it goes back to something that Ben Graham was talking about 100 years ago, where you look at a P ratio, you average it out over a number of years to help average out the business cycle. And so for the S&P, going back to 1900 or U.S. stocks, for example, that value has been around 17 over, over time. Now, it's been as low as five and it's been as high as 45 in the dot-com bubble. And not surprisingly, if you group stocks into buckets of valuation, so 0 to 10, 10 to 15, 15, 20, above 20, in each bucket, it goes a stair step. So when the market's the cheapest, so below P ratio of 10, future returns are very high, 10-year returns. And this isn't a market timing indicator for the next month or quarter, but this plays out over years. And then when markets are, are normal, you know, you're going to get 10% returns. And then when markets are expensive, you're going to have very low returns. And this has worked very well over the past 120 years. And so where we are right now, so here's what's interesting. So you went back to 2000, trading at a value of 45. No rational person would say it makes sense to be paying 45 times earnings for the S&P 500. And it gives you that kind of common sense takeaway. Now, in March of 2009, it got that, that what we call the CAPE ratio got down to a value, I think, of around 13. So really cheap, not extremely cheap, but, but really cheap. And then where do we sit today? U.S. stocks have been the number one performing stock market in the world since 2009, which is very rare. Usually U.S. versus foreign stocks is a coin flip. It's literally 50-50 as long back as we have data, which outperforms. Um, and so you've had this massive outperformance in U.S. stocks. So U.S. stocks now traded a CAPE ratio of 30, which is one of the highest values we've ever seen. It doesn't mean it's a bubble. You know, I don't think that bubble really until you get into the high 30s or 40s. Um, and it doesn't mean they have to crash. It just means future expected returns are going to be lower. So going back to the expectations and ideas we were talking about earlier, you know, historically people have been expecting 10% for stocks. We think that value going forward for the next 10 years is probably around 4 and then you add on U.S. bonds at, say, 2.2 or 2.5, and there's no way that 60-40 portfolio is going to have the expected returns historically of what most pension funds and endowments expect of 8%. And so, so one of the things that people need to realize if you're looking into those assets is expectations need to be a lot lower. Now, the good news is the rest of the world ranges from reasonably cheap. So we were the first people to do this, but a lot of others do it now where we built CAPE ratios for every country in the world. And so foreign develop sits around that 16 range, which is totally normal. Foreign emerging is down around that 13 or 14 range, which is quite cheap. And the cheapest quartile of stocks, so the 12 of the 45 cheapest countries in the world, is at a P ratio of around 10. And that's one of the biggest um, discrepancies between U.S. stocks and the foreign markets, particularly uh, the really cheap stuff, and the entire history of the database that we have, certainly going back to the 80s and 70s, and thinking about stock opportunities, you know, a long-term investor, you could either A, allocate to a fund that does this, so you could allocate to a fund that naturally rebalances into the cheapest countries, and we have funds that do that, or B, when you're reviewing your portfolio on a yearly basis, take a step back and say, okay, you know, and, and remarking about in the U.S., we were talking about earlier where U.S. investors put 70% in the U.S. We say, you know what, maybe it doesn't make sense to be putting the most 
in, we calculate the second most expensive country in the world currently, maybe we should be paring down U.S. stocks and allocating to foreign stocks and particularly the really cheap stuff. And the interesting part about this is it's not always the U.S. The U.S. Is, used to be one of the cheapest countries in the world when it hit a value of five, and it could certainly go higher. It could hit a value of 45, and even higher than that, you know, Japan hit the highest value we've ever seen in the 80s when it hit a P ratio of almost 100. But then Japan had terrible market returns for the next 20 years and what people call the lost decades. Um, and it's not like Japan was some backwater economy. Japan's market got to be the largest by market cap as a percent of the world back in the 80s when it got to almost half. So if you're a global market cap investor, you had a minus 2% per year drag on returns because of investing in Japan during that period. So um, thinking about value and starting to tilt away from what uh, you know common sense would dictate, and particularly in the U.S. right now, uh, also applies to traders and short-term traders and traders working at banks because many of them have additional exposure through their retirement plans or through their job, et cetera. Um, but that's an easy indication, we think, that, that helps uh, improve upon just the base case portfolios. Now, just so we don't lose anyone, when you're talking about the CAPE ratio, what exactly is that referring to and how is that different to a PE ratio? So the CAPE ratio is a PE ratio. PE ratio is simply price to earnings ratio. And the CAPE ratio is say, let's take a 10-year average of the PE ratio. So, you know, um, and it also adjusts for inflation. So trying to compare apples to oranges uh, over time doesn't make sense. So adjusting for inflation makes a lot of sense. Um, and historically, we've done a lot of simulations with various PE ratios. And, and the worst one to use is the one-year PE ratio, usually because it's so volatile. Uh, but the longer term metrics, whether it's five years, seven years or 10 years work a lot better because they reduce, um, turnover as well as have, uh, a longer term focus. Okay. Um, now I think this, this next question probably leads on from your last comments there. Let's talk about timing, like timing when to begin investing. Like, you know, there's a lot of talk going around at the moment is there always is, you know, there's many people think the stock market's about to fall out of bed and all the rest of it. I'm not saying that it is or isn't. I really have no opinion on it. But there are people who do have the opinion that, you know, we're going to see some severe downside. How do you time getting into investing? Because, you know, if you'd bought any time in 2007, we'll see 2008 would be very tragic. You've had to wait many, many years to get your money back and to even start making some returns. So, how do you time getting into investing? I know that wasn't very well worded, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, we deal with this question a lot with individual investors that are uh, asking the same question, Meb, when, when do I get in? And should I jump all in or should I spread it out? Should I wait? And my first response is always, look, you know, a global portfolio, you're not just investing in one asset class. You're investing in U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, U.S. bonds, foreign bonds, real estate, commodities, everything in between. So, there's a huge portfolio of different assets. However, um, even if you were investing in just one asset class and say U.S. stocks, uh, the correct mathematical choice is to invest all of it now. Now, that may not be the correct emotional choice. A lot of people have a big problem with regret and hindsight bias. So if you were to invest it all in 2007 and the market crapped out in 2008, 
a lot of people emotionally and psychologically would really struggle with that decision. They would have pulled their hair out and said, man, that was really dumb. I wish I hadn't done that. I should have waited a year. That was stupid. So we say, even if it's irrational, we're totally fine with people spreading out dollar cost averaging into their investments into as long of a time frame as they feel comfortable. They can invest every month for the next five, 10 years if they wanted to. And that traditional dollar cost averaging is a great way to go about it. Um, but in general, the correct math is everything now. However, if you were to ask that question as a specific market, like we were just talking about U.S. stocks and valuation and say, look, the way that we liken it is it's like playing blackjack. And so you have a stock market that's trading at a PUK ratio of 30, so very high historically. It's kind of like sitting down at a blackjack table and watching someone have a 16 versus the dealer's 10 up card. And then historically, that's a hand you're very likely to lose. It's not guaranteed, but you're likely to lose. And the flip side, let's say you have a uh, 19 and the dealer is showing a six, chances are you may win that. Chances are you should win that hand. Okay. So um, it's the same thing with valuation where we're trading at a P ratio of 30. Chances are returns are going to be low. Could they go higher? Absolutely. Um, but is the more likely scenario that they go down or sideways? Probably. And, and so, um, in a scenario where you take a common sense approach and if, if you were only investing in one asset class, you could say, look, like, like an expensive U S stock market, you could say, okay, I'm going to invest, but here's the rules. You know, I'm going to dollar cost and average until this gets back to an average valuation, et cetera. Granted, I think the better way to do it is invest in a global portfolio, start all now, because one of the things we learned from compounding is the earlier you start, the better and, uh, make, make time work for you. Sure. Yeah. Fair comment. I also want to go back to a comment you made a little earlier. Uh, you brought up rebalancing and that's something we haven't really talked about too much, I don't think, unless it's sort of slipped past me. But how do you think about rebalancing and just to bring it right back to basics, what's the point of rebalancing your portfolio? So let's say you have a portfolio that's 60% stocks, 40% bonds and stocks have a monster year and they start to drift to where now your portfolio is 80% stocks and 20% bonds. Well, that may give you an exposure that has drifted from your original intended portfolio. And if given a long enough time horizon, those two assets, because stocks historically have had a much longer, uh, a much higher return, you know, that portfolio is going to eventually end up being 90% stocks or 95% stocks and 5% bonds. That having been said, there's been periods of 20, 40, 60 years where stocks don't outperform bonds. But in general, the, the evidence has been stocks, uh, Jeremy Siegel's famous phrase, stocks for the long run, uh, stocks have outperformed bonds. Now, the more assets you have, the less it matters. So what we often say is rebalancing is good to do as long as you do it sometime. So even on a yearly basis, you rebalance the target. It gives you the nice discipline of selling the winners adding more to the losers, um, and rebalancing back to target. However, in a multi-asset class portfolio, you could do that every even three to five years, and it's not going to make a difference. Um, it only matters that you do it sometime. So if you left it for 20 years, then it gets kind of out of whack. So really rebalancing, I think, is and, and the biggest consideration is to do it, make sure you do it tax efficiently. Uh, you know, so, so you're doing it to where you're not paying a lot of taxes, 
and doing it smart, but it's, it doesn't matter that much as long as you, so the true lazy man, these global asset, asset allocation portfolios can be very lazy. You could buy into one and not do anything for five years if you wanted to. Um, but we often say yearly cause it's just a nice habit to say, Hey, I'm going to look at my investment portfolio once a year, make some tweaks and that's about it. Okay. Now you brought up tax considerations, um, and, and doing it in a tax efficient way. I mean, I know everyone's tax situation is different. And I mean, we've got people listening to this podcast in however many different countries. Just broadly speaking, is there anything you can add around um, the idea of doing things tax efficiently? Oh boy, there's a lot. And let me sort of, um, I'm going to talk about taxes and then I want to talk about fees too, because if, if everyone listening hasn't fallen asleep yet, they're probably going to nod off now. But the, the irony is they're probably the most important determinants of your future performance uh, of your portfolio, vastly more important than your asset allocation for long-term investors. And, and let me explain why. So taxes, um, if you look at traditional investment options. So let's compare an index fund to a actively managed mutual fund to a hedge fund, right? And so let's say that, that we're targeting a return net of all expenses of around 8%. Well, the index fund, you only need to have about a 10% return to, to have a net of 8% return after all taxes and fees because likely the transaction costs are low because the fund doesn't have much turnover. The management fee is only 0.1% and you're not paying a whole lot on, on, on taxes and dividends because it's a, a fairly tax efficient portfolio. Still pay it on dividends, but, but not on, on taxes. So you really only need a 10% return to get to that 8%. Um, an actively managed mutual fund because it probably has 100% turnover and because the management fee is that traditional 1.25% that we talked about earlier for mutual funds, you all of a sudden need to have 13, over 13% gross returns to get that 8% after tax. So that mutual fund manager, and this is why the high percent of mutual funds fail to beat the indices, is because of the high turnover and the high uh, uh, annual fees and costs. And then lastly, you have our hedge fund friends, which charge two and 20 and have probably even higher turnover. You need to generate a 19% gross return to get to an 8% net return. And that's one of the biggest problems with a lot of hedge funds. People see them being very sexy, the high returns potential. Here's the great stuff they're buying, very swashbuckling. But the problem is particularly in taxable accounts, um, you really want to avoid them in many cases because they have to generate a massive amount of alpha just to break even with an index fund. So that, that's just kind of illustrate the importance of taxes. And there's a lot of other things you can do is say, um, try to optimize where you hold the assets, whether in taxable or tax efficient accounts. We actually did a, a blog post, which we're not going to go down that rabbit hole because it's um, probably a whole another hour long topic is talking about avoiding dividend yielding and, and yielding stocks in general and taxable accounts because they underperform once you include uh, tax on dividends. But the, the one segue that I wanted to make that I think I, sh I should have mentioned earlier that I think is profoundly interesting is in our book, Global Asset Allocation, we look at when we're talking about these asset allocation portfolios, we went around and said, huh, this is interesting. There's been about a dozen super famous guru investors. So we're talking Dave Swinson of Yale, uh, Warren Buffett, Muhammad L. Aryan of PIMCO and Harvard, 
Ray Dalio runs a large hedge fund in the world. These guys that manage trillions that at one point have stated, here's a recommended asset allocation portfolio for an individual investor. And so in the book, we said, okay, well, let's examine how all these portfolios have performed all the way back to 1972. And they are vastly different portfolios. Some put 25% in gold, some put zero, some put 50% in stock, some much lower amount. And so these portfolios look very, very different. With the exception of the permanent portfolio, which isn't really fair because it has half the portfolio in cash and bonds, these portfolios, all dozen of them since 1972, performed within one percentage point of each other. And to me, that is an astounding statistic. And so here's the fun experiment. If you went back to 1972 and I said, Aaron, I'm going to give you a crystal ball. I'm going to let you pick the single best asset allocation portfolio out of my book for the next, whatever, 35 years. You know, how much would somebody pay for that? How much would PIMCO pay for that? Billions? Absolutely. I said, however, here's the catch. You have to implement that portfolio, the average mutual fund fee today, 1.25%. Let's not even talk about the average mutual fund fee 30 years ago, 2 3%, but 1.25% today. Would you take that deal? You know, everyone would probably say, absolutely. I get the best performing portfolio. So that would have been the L. Ariana portfolio, which is endowment-like, so very heavy exposure to growth and equities. Had you implemented that portfolio with the average mutual fund fee, you would have transformed the best performing portfolio in my book to almost as bad as the worst. So... The takeaway being that most people, what do they spend their time thinking about as long-term investors? Their asset allocation, are stocks expensive? What about gold? How much should I put in bonds? What should I be buying Greek debt right now? Is the real estate market, um, how's that going to do in a, in a Fed rising environment? And, and what should I do about Bitcoin? All these questions that people spend all their time sweating and thinking about, how little do they think about fees? If you had to go a step further and said, you know what, I don't trust myself, so I'm going to hire an advisor, pay him 1%. He's going to allocate it to a great portfolio of mutual funds at 1.25%. That would have taken the best performing portfolio and made it far worse than the worst performing portfolio in the entire book. And that, for a lot of people, is um, a tough kind of pill to swallow. You know, they, they want to think about the exciting parts about investing, which are you know, the stock market and everything else, but really the boring blocking and tackling of taxes and fees is likely going to have a much bigger impact on your portfolio than everything else we talked about over the past hour. Right. Well, that really puts things in perspective. <laughs> or puts people asleep, one or the other. <laughs> All right, Matt. Well, let's summarize some of the things we've been talking about over the past 60 minutes or so. So from what you've seen, where do most people struggle the most? It's unquestionably with, with their emotions, you know, and, and we see this over and over again and, and it has different flavors, of course, but, uh, our Canadian friends who are flipping real estate houses right now are probably getting to see it. And they're having conferences where Pitbull is the, you know, uh, hyping people up about investing in real estate to, you know, you, you see these sort of bubble, we've written papers on, you know, one was called Learning to Love Investment Bubbles. And it goes back to the South Sea bubble in the 18th century and talks about all these famous bubbles across history. And you see them rinse and repeat over and over again. And, and the ch- I think the biggest challenge for people 
One is they don't teach, at least in the U.S., they don't teach personal finance or investing in high school. You know, it's not a core curriculum. And, and for most people, they don't teach it in college unless you're in economics or investment major. And so a lot of these concepts, what is probably the one skill set that every human being on the planet uses the most? And it's personal finance or investing um, and how to just deal with money. And so the biggest challenge, I think, is coming up with an investment plan that's logical, that you can implement, um, that's based on history and sticking to it. The big, the biggest key being sticking to it and, uh, you know, not getting caught up in, in whatever the macro environment is, because the biggest challenge is that the times that you want to be investing the most is the times that it feels the hardest and vice versa. And just to take a step off that, you know, Investing can be as simple as you want to make it or it can be as complex as you want to make it. Where do you see many people overly complicating things? Like, is there anything which stands out to you? Yeah, we see a lot of people that come to us with portfolios and we call this mutual fund salad, right? Where they show up and they say, here's my portfolio. I have 30 mutual funds. And you can't even ask them, say, what percent do you have in stocks? What are your exposures? They have no idea because they've just been accumulating these and, you know, the, the psychological bias have become wedding to something you own. You know, you care more about it once you own it. So whether that's your car or your house or your, your stock portfolio. So we often tell people, say, look, it's okay to start from zero. You can sell everything ignoring taxes. So if you've owned GE since the 1940s, ignore that last comment. But in general, you can sell everything and start over. And the biggest problem people have is I think often they pay way too much in fees. And this is even more onerous um, to your listeners in, say, Europe and in some countries around the world uh, to where indexing and, and low cost pressure of like a Vanguard hasn't really caused the entire space to go down. But, you know, I, I think that, that paying a lot in fees and become emotionally attached to your portfolio is a big one. And that's the beauty of a digital advisor. And I think you're going to see a lot more of this. And, and this is one of the reasons we're in the early innings of this sort of disruption, which is great for investors. And an example is this. So there's four ETFs that are asset allocation, global asset allocation ETFs, where we have one of them that charge less than 0.3% per year. And they manage around $2 billion. So pretty good, right? But there's something like 600 mutual funds that charge over that amount, in some cases it's one, two, three percent per year, they manage almost a trillion. And so you can see a lot of this money is still in very high fee structures that, and look, I'll be the first to admit, all that matters is total returns after all fees and taxes. So if you got a killer hedge fund doing something crazy that's making great returns, hey man, thumbs up. But the vast majority of managers that aren't doing anything by definition are meant to be lazy and buy and hold, you should be paying as little as possible. So simple takeaways, you know, are, um, the good news is a lot of the stuff to put into practice is very simple. So uh, a long-term portfolio, have a plan, pay as little as you can in taxes and fees and stick to it. That's good advice that most people can handle. And the digital advisor, the beauty of it, whether you use ours, whether you use Vanguard's doesn't matter is that they do it all for you. And it kind of whirs in the background. And I think particularly the younger crowd listening um, can certainly identify more with that a little more than the older crowd, although the average age of our investors 
on the digital side is in the late forties. So, um, perhaps, uh, maybe, maybe it's not as true as we think, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a wonderful time to be an investor. And I would say, just be mindful of what you pay and how you implement it. Yeah. Well, Meb, this has been really interesting. If anyone listening to this podcast maybe has some questions or they want to find out more, where would you point them? Where's the best place to go um, to find out more about you? Uh, we got about four places. So you can watch me pick fights on Twitter at Meb Faber. We have my blog, which has thousands of posts on it. Um, and that's just mebfaber.com. We have my two, three work sites. So there's the digital advisors, cambriainvestments.com. The fun website is cambriafunds.com. Our research portal is theideafarm.com. And I think I mentioned it before, but uh, if you want to download a free book, freebook.mebfaber.com, uh, you get to download our last book off Amazon. But lastly, just shoot me an email. More than happy to connect anytime. And if you're in Los Angeles, come look me up. We'll grab a beer or a coffee. Cool, man. Well, I'll make sure to include all those links in one place in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com as well. So um, one thing you didn't mention is you've got a podcast yourself. Where can people go to find out more about that? Is that on your blog, I presume? Yeah, blog, iTunes, Meb Faber Show, creative name. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun and uh, we try... If I can get around to it, put out one per week. But as you know, Aaron, it's a, it's a, it's a labor of love and it's a lot of work. So you guys make sure to go give Aaron lots of good reviews because it's, 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 it's a lot more work than I thought it would be. But it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Admittedly, I was a little bit naive going into it as well. It turned out to be a bit more work than I expected. But um, no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Meb, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, man. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you once again. It's been great. Let's do it again. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.